last minute, Pastor Kim was supposed to preach today, but had a um, procedure done earlier this week uh, that it just, you just didn't feel like it was healed enough to come up here and preach. So um, we had been taking notes and working together on the sermon series, so I just kind of jumped in and took this one today. Um, and the overall idea of this me-we dichotomy is that it's not so much of a dichotomy as um, an overlapping sense of who we are. There's a relationship between you as individuals, all of the me's that are represented in this room, and the communal identity of a church, the we that is collectively in one place at one time or in community in relationship together. And so there's a reciprocal dynamic, right? Every me here contributes to what the we will look like and the overall we has the ability to shape and to create a sense of life change as we come together and become one together. And so we want to see that reciprocal relationship as good. There's all kinds of values and beliefs and backgrounds and preferences. There's all kinds of ideals. There's political ideologies and all of them get to come together um, to shape what we call our we. And it informs the perspective of who we are in reverse. That you get to benefit from having people who maybe aren't like you in the same place as you. Um, I remember, I, I think I've used this illustration to some extent before, but kind of in a fresh way, um, I remember trying to figure out, like I, I loved going to the movies as a kid, it would be something I would look forward to. Um, and then uh, the, the big bummer about going with a group is that everyone has an opinion on what movie we should be watching. And I remember thinking, man, I should have just come here alone. But uh, I didn't. I had a group of people. So I had to figure well, what do you want to watch? What do you want to see? I already saw that. That person already saw this. Well, this is the newest one coming out. We had to figure out what this was going to look like as a group. Um, and, and, and the saying is true, right? If you, wanna, uh, if you want all of your own preferences, just go alone. But if you want to go in a group, you immediately have to begin negotiating what that's going to look like. And the devastation of our human state is this, that we are divided and, and maybe this is obvious, and that's why it kind of has to be um, established, because the division here happens because of the subtleness that maybe we overlook it, that we live in an individualistic culture. Okay, so again, stating the obvious, right? You've heard us talk about this, but I want to qualify that just a little bit, since individualism is so obvious, I think we just miss the implication and what that does to us. It's, it's, it's this idea of our, our, um, our culture being depicted as individualist against a collectivist society that has a more communal sense. Um, when something happens to me, the whole group feels it. When something happens to you, I feel it, right? That's, that's not normative inside of our group. And so if you were to say on a scale from one to 10, an individualist society is here and a collectivist society is over here at a 10, what I want us to really understand is, yeah, sure, we're individualistic, but it get, we get it. It's just like who we are as part of America, right? We're not, we're not even um, close to middle. We're like notch over, notch over, notch over. If one is individualistic, we're living at that extreme end of it. And so it's one way to say, well, like individualistic compared to who, it's a little bit subjective, you know. Um, but, but what I'm saying is no matter who you are, there is a sense wherein if you live in our culture, you are extreme, maybe even radically individualist. All right, is my point kind of made? We're over here, way, way over here, way, way over there. In fact, everything around us is telling us to indulge. I, I looked up this, um, this statistic, I was just kind of Googling things and found something um, 
on, on uh, it was research done, and it said this, decades-long research puts America quantifiably at the highest end of the individualist spectrum, in addition to being heavily indulgent and short-term in our thinking. It's like we're, we're radically individualist. And so what does that mean for people who are trying to be together, who are trying to stick together, who are trying to be a communal we, is that we're always being stretched and pressured and, and, um, and torn in different directions. There's a pulling up and down and a left and a right. There's this kind of in and out. Like, like what are your preferences for a Sunday morning gathering? Do you want topical preaching or expository preaching? Who's the person up on stage preaching? What kind of transitions, or sorry, translation of the scripture do we use? What songs are they going to pick? Are they going to upbeat or, collect or contemplative? How charismatic does our church? But think outside of that. We have generational preferences in this room that go far beyond the walls of a Sunday gathering, political associations, all kinds of different things that would consider or that would, that would create an environment where trying to stick together could be all but impossible. Do you ever feel that tension? I mean, I, f- I feel like it's constant, Right? We're being told to indulge our desires, that you are entitled to all of your preferences, ideals, all the things that cater to your extreme, extreme individualism. And because of that, unified community suffers. Okay, so, so we come back to our name, Common Ground. It's a unifying statement. It's a value, not just a name that we have picked out of nowhere. Um, we, we see this as something that should be a shaping ideology, a value of our church. And so when we need to see that our we as it is something that needs to be held as priority over our me. And so today, we're, what we're really trying to do is figure out what does the scripture tell us? Like, How do we move, how do we see the we as greater than me? How do we move in the direction from being so me-focused that we move into a we kind of idea that that we could give more weight to our we than always to our me? And as a result, um, stick together. As a result, refuse to be discommunitied from one another. As a result, come together, but it's not easy, right? It's hard. I mean, you get into one argument and it's easy to say, I don't need this. Why am I doing this? I can just move in a different direction. Our individualism is baked into us and it produces an imagination. Hear hear this. It produces an imagination of a God who is in our own image. All right? Instead of allowing God, the one who created us, to form us in his image. All right. So what I want to show you is um, if you go around the world, you will see depictions of Jesus that correspond to whatever cu- culture created it. So check this out. Lots of Jesuses. We got um, Jesus from, from different ethnicities, from different backgrounds, from different um, styles. I mean, the artistic style and the presentation. There's even more in the background. There are so many out there. And if you look at it, what you'll find is that um, in Europe, you're going to find a European-looking Jesus. And in Africa, you're going to find an African-looking Jesus. And in East Asia, you're going to find an East Asian-looking Jesus. And in some ways, we can step back and see how it creates this beautiful kaleidoscope of human diversity that is trying to follow Jesus somehow, some way, grasping for a way to allow that representation to be uh, brought into their culture. When you centralize or attempt to normalize any one 
it's not just making God in our own image, it's creating an idol. And so here's the most popular Jesus in America. Look at that guy. I, I don't trust this guy if I'm out in the wild, if I'm honest. Like, you know, if I'm in a rough situation, he's not coming to my rescue. Um, so this is just a, 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 a very popular, um, I, don't know, I don't know if it's actually the most popular, it's a very popular depiction of Jesus in our culture. So when we look at scripture, um, what, what I want us to see is when that becomes idle, I don't know how to fix that. Do you want me to step back, that little fuzziness that's coming through there? I feel like I'm, a, I'm afraid. Oh, really? Do I need to bring this forward? Oh, cool. Thanks, God. All right. <laughs> it did help. Well done, sir. I'm going to back up just a little bit too. All right, cool. Um, so so when, you, when you start to centralize one, it becomes this kind of idol that we see. And, and so what, what I want us to do is to jump into Exodus 20. Because what does God tell us about idol worship? What does God tell us about uh, building a community around something other than him? Well, Exodus 20 is the first of the Ten Commandments. And this is what it said. Exodus 20, verse 1. The verses should be up on the screen for you. It said, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, real quick, I want you to notice that as God is about to lay down some parameters um, for his community, what I want you all to look like, it is first based upon his movement towards them, an invitation of grace he has initiated. Do you see that? Then Israel's obedience as a response to that is to obey the commandments. That, but, but what that means is that we have the opportunity to enjoy what the Lord has already done by freeing, by delivering, by getting them out of the land of Egypt. Okay? So obedience looks like enjoying the freedom that God has established. From here on, the Lord will use the Exodus event over and over. It's like this prophetic echo that takes place numerous times from the rest of Scripture. And, and what he's wanting to do is to make sure that they identify, they understand his identity as this person. He does this often. He calls them to remember what he has done for them and to create an identity that is reciprocal to that. And then the, the verses says this, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and first thing, you shall have no other gods that word is Elohim before me. The second one, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So after God identifies himself as this rescuer in the context of their emancipation, he moves on to see that, that, that as he's shifting gears, he is very concerned about the possibility that they will begin to follow other things, to worship other things, to put something on a platform of worship. We remember we talked about that word gods there, Elohim, refers to um, anything that could be included underneath the godly council. These the spiritual beings that are in heaven, the cherubim, the seraphim, angels, demons. Um, and then he moves into more practical, the things on heaven and earth and in the sea. So when you look up in the sky, don't worship those things. When you look around on land, don't worship those things. When you look into the ocean, don't worship those things. Don't worship anything other than me. Humans are uniquely good at finding a way to worship anything. I don't need too many examples at the beginning of the football season right? I'm speaking to myself. 
humans will even make things up in their own imaginations and worship them. And if you're God, like, have you, if you're a parent in here, have you ever been in that situation like, I just need a shake in my head emoji right now because y'all are crazy. Like, like, I did not ever think in my life that I would ever have to look into the eyes of my child and say, don't drink the bath water. Bro, like, it just seems like there's grime on you. It gets in the bath. The grime that comes out of you is in the bath. Like, I just didn't think I'd have to, but apparently I do. Don't drink the bath water, man. That's a, it's just bad, bad for you. Like, there was a moment where we had to take, um, uh, I can't remember the full extent if we ended up having to take him to, to the emergency room, but like, on the other side of this big event, I'm having to lay down a rule that we don't stick popcorn kernels in our nose. They get stuck up there. I just, you know, as I'm like a parent, I'm thinking, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't have kids and think I was going to have to establish such low-level logic, but they're, they're babies. So think about God in heaven, and he's like, you, you just made that up. You don't remember making that thing up, and now you're worshiping it. Worshiping it. You just made that up. Like, could you imagine the parenting instinct of God? Like, I just didn't think I would have to say this to you. But he does. We will make things up to worship him. So, so hear me, God is not concerned that they're going to worship, uh, that, that, that they're not going to worship him because he's uh, insecure as the most high being in the universe. He knows us well. He's been down on our level. He knows that created beings and, and the, the ailments, the things that tempt us, the things under which we suffer, and the likelihood that we will eventually make anything a God to be worshipped. And if we can't do that, then we will worship the God of me, right? So maybe not directly, maybe we'll make this, the desires of our heart, that centralized thing. We'll chase our dreams at any cost. We'll go after something in spite of all of the wisdom that could be around us. Chase anything that might be a satisfaction, even in the short term. We'll go after anything at the cost of our brothers and sisters sometimes. We'll chase things at the cost of the cohesion of our unified community. The community is a gift that God has given us. It's something for us to enjoy a part of him on this earth. I'm going to explain more of what that means throughout the sermon, but we don't get to just indulge all of our me's if we want to be in this community together. You can have all your preferences, remember. You just got to do it alone. Because as soon as you enter one person, it's a negotiation. A new variable gets entered into the equation, and the outcome is going to be changed. And so we have to weigh in their opinion too, whoever that there is. We have to weigh into those things because the alternative to that is either going alone or subjugation. Aggressive, systematic, social, systematic uh, a subjugation of a, of a kind that even will just put your preferences on them without you having to make it happen. Okay, we don't get to go our own ways. And, and then what I wanted to point out, Ken, Pastor Ken, he... He preached um, last week and he brought this verse into it and I wanted to bring it back to our attention. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We are wired to go on our own way. 
to seek and indulge that me at every opportunity. We acknowledge the line in our historical liturgy. In fact, we had a young person come up and speak to us about the same line. Do you remember the hymn? It says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter by my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Like, we, we get it. I am prone to wander. I am prone to go in the opposite direction as the communal whole. But here is, um, in spite of that truth, I want to read the rest, the context of Isaiah 53, and start in verse 4, coming back to that. Because here's the hope that we see in it. Verse 4 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid it on him, the iniquities of us all. So we have this acknowledgement and the tension of what's happening here is that, yeah, we've gone astray. Yes, we're prone to wander. Yeah, we're going to do this thing. But God doesn't put the period on the sentence there. He doesn't end that paragraph. He said, no, 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 no. Even in your wandering, I paid the price. I'm the one who stepped in, and even in the scattering, a sacrifice was already made. God made a way for the wandering sheep of Israel to return back to him. He provided the sacrifice already. And so Jesus takes this theme and carries it into the New Testament with John 10. And I want to read to you just two sections from John 10. It says this, I am the good what? Do we have the words up? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Hey, sorry, I got ahead of you. I am the good what? All right, he's, he's referencing Isaiah 53, all right? Just letting you know that hyperlink exists. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his what? Life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is hired, he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus defends the unity of this people he is talking about. He lays down his life for this people that he wants to be brought into the fold. And they are not scattered even when an enemy attempts to divide them. But it's not just this Old Testament idea of Israel that he's speaking about. In fact, verse 14 continues with this. Once again, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So there's a lot going on in here, but listen. Jesus is prophetically speaking about this unification that's going to take place between the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and the Gentiles, which we spent an entire summer talking about. And it's not easy. You bring these other sheep in, and all of a sudden the sheep are like, well, I like that kind of grass. Okay, the shepherd, let's, let's go to that grass for a little while. Well, this group, they like that grass. Okay, let's go over here, let's go over here. 
I like it when the streams are kind of gurgling. Let's go to these streams and drink from those ones. No, I like the, the gentle streams. Can we go back to that one? And the shepherd's like bringing these people into one fold, trying to help them understand that we as a community will have to wander around and sacrifice for one another. So, so, so what ends up happening is all of us need to come to the terms with this fact. There is no flock if we're scattered. There is no flock if we just choose to go in whatever direction we want, as Isaiah 53 warned us. And there is no flock if nobody hears the shepherd's voice in the darkness and hears it and knows that that's the Savior and goes in. If the sheep don't rally around him who is the good shepherd, who wields both the rod and the staff, who also guides us to green pastures and uh, to, to green meadows and quiet waters. So in his love, he's like, look, I have to make you aware that you are going to wander at every moment. I take a left turn. If you get behind, I have to go back and find you because you get lost in the woods. One sheep wanders, I go after that person. I chase them. One wants to come back in, the sacrifice is made. I'm going to let that person right back in. He's like, your awareness to this, I can't just hide that. The fact is, you wander. I wander. We all wander, and we need him to keep us together. Sheep cannot, listen, sheep cannot be their own shepherd any more than we could be our own emancipator in the land of Egypt. You hear that? We can't be our own shepherd. Once again, he points us back to Jesus in this moment. So what does the shepherd reveal in his goodness? What does he tell you to do in this passage? What does he model for us to follow? Because here's, here's the kicker of this whole thing. The twist, if there is one. He didn't just provide this legal requirement, the sacrifice that allows us to come back. He provided for us the example on how it is that we are going to stay together. We can keep ourselves from scattering. We can keep ourselves from leaving God or each other. And it all boils down to sacrifice. We have a choice to make those decisions. See, over and over again, you show, he shows us that in order to keep the community unified, there will need to be a laying down of each other's lives for the sake of the other. And so when that sheep comes in, he's like, okay, I don't like those rushing waters, but let's go over there sometimes. I, I, like, I like the like, light green grass. You maybe like the ones that are a little bit burnt over, about to be brown. I, I don't know. Let's go to yours every once in a while. Oh, thanks. Well, let's go to yours every once in a while. Let's, let's have an exchange. But, but to do that, it takes sacrifice. A laying down of your time, a laying down of one's resources, a laying down of one's power. John 15, 12 says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That sacrifice is baked right into us to counteract the self-indulgent individualism. And so it's not just this rule that we don't get to indulge, that we don't get to go our own way, or just because God said that we stick together, so we must, we got to stick together. I want you to see as more, or less of a rule and more of this idea of wisdom, because when you start to surrender to that bigger we, it might be a little uncomfortable at first, it might be a little awkward at first, but you just might realize that you've come to like someone else's preferences. 
You didn't realize you liked to do that thing until they introduced it. And you're like, wow, well, I was a little timid to do that. But look, it looks like so much fun. Stand, dancing during worship. You're all looking around like, nah, I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you like it. And you didn't know it. Because you never tried it. Maybe you're missing out on something that you would really enjoy to do, but you are so tight-fisted and committed to your own thing that you wouldn't release that, surrender it to someone else and realize that you might actually like some of the flavors, some of the types, some of the things and others might bring to the table. Maybe you'd like that style if you just check it out. Maybe that kind of music in worship would be appealing to you. Maybe that kind of liturgical expression would actually be very life-giving to your walk with Jesus. Maybe you would like to learn something from the other side of the aisle yeah maybe you could learn to benefit from the broader we in ways that you never ever imagined and if you did you would understand what you're leaving behind and regret it the only way to find out is to sacrifice though is to surrender you have to surrender to God in order to work out the idol worship of our heart that we talked about at the beginning, to remove the things that we've enthroned inappropriately in our life, and then you have to surrender to one another to work out the selfishness in our own ways and wanting to just do things my way, to work out that the value and power of the we to surrender to one another is a benefit of the plurality of all of the different people in this room. And broaden that, all of the different cultures that you might experience represented in here. Be humble enough to make room for others. One thing that, um, and I, I, I try not to like use examples like this because it's, it's um, odd, but um, when, I was, when I was in seminary, one of the things, because it was a lot of different, it wasn't one denomination at the seminary I went to. And so what we would do is bring up a topic, right, some geeky thing about Greek, whatever, or, uh, you know, some atonement theology, whatever, you, you just put whatever you want, and then they would ask, anyone here from the Presbyterian background? Oh, I am, cool, what, what's the Presbyterian take on this? Okay, who, who in here, who in here comes from like a, a charismatic, a Pentecostal, oh, cool, Get to, what's, oh, okay, what, who, anyone in here from the Baptist circle? And they're like, no, sorry, they don't, they're not, I'm just kidding, I was, I was that person, I was, I was that person. And, and then we are trained on the other side. When you speak, don't say, this is blank, or this verse means this, but in my expression, in my heritage, in the tradition I grew up in, we took this to mean that. My point is this, can we find language similar so that we can be humble enough to make room for other people's opinions? So finally, just one last thing that I wanted to apply to our lives. Become curious. We, we talked about this in the cultural negotiations class. Become curious. Have a, uh, it's not enough to put up with somebody else's preferences. It's a totally different posture to move in a loving direction towards someone and say, hey, can you show me that? Can you teach me this thing? I've never seen someone go about the relationship with God like that. I've never, I've never spent time in silence, but it seems like you do that a lot. Can you show me what it is that you're doing? Have a curious disposition towards one another and the things that you might bring. This is how the we teaches the me about the parts of God that exist that we never even knew existed. There might be aspects of God that you didn't even have imagination for until you were brought into a community of people that could share it together. Once we've mastered this as friends, you can learn a lot. Once you've mastered it as a church family, it gets even bigger. 
You can cross into other churches and we can learn from one another, other parts of our community here inside of this area. Um, but what, one of the things that stuck out to me, I read this article one time, I think the guy's name was Dr. David Wells. He, he was saying that every culture has a unique part of Jesus to offer up and we won't actually have a full understanding of our worship of God until every single culture is represented. So there are ways that God has deposited a piece of himself in India. And if you didn't grow up in that context, you've got something to learn from them about God. There's a part of Jesus deposited into certain areas inside of the Amazon jungle. And once redeemed, brings a fuller, bigger picture of who God is, who Jesus is. And so when we look at that picture and we step back, maybe there is something that we can learn from all these different depictions of Jesus as long as we don't try to make one supreme in the midst of it. That there is a piece of God sitting in parts of Africa and Latin America and East Asia and beyond that we have yet to understand. And so we need each other. It's not just we have to be with each other. We get to be with each other and we need each other. And this to me is ultimately what leads us, I think, to the trajectory of a Revelations six, uh, seven, nine. <laughs> nine, seven, did I flip it? Sorry. <laughs> uh, where every tribe, tongue, and nation can come together under the Lamb of God who has made the sacrifice so that we could come together. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. We're going to lift our voices up one more time. I do want to encourage you as I end this, find those who were baptized, give them a high five. Maybe give a high five to the parents who came up and dedicated their babies. They're going to need some encouragement. Amen. And let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for, um, for who you are, the parts that I know, the limited aspects of who you are that I haven't um, uh, even understood uh, that you have revealed to me. But God, could you, um, this, this is an audacious prayer, Lord. As a church, we're asking, could you reveal parts of you that we don't even know exist because they've been entrusted to other cultures and other places and other peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, Lord. They are a gift to us, revealing something new about who you are. And so, Lord, let us bring what we've learned and let us learn what they have uh, developed in and of their selves, God. That we would have uh, a posture of curiosity, a posture of humility, a posture of we get to be together, not we have to be together. And, Lord, would you keep us from scattering? Would you keep us from wandering? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take our hearts, Lord. Take and see them, see them for the courts above. We ask for this powerfully in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen. Mm -hmm.